0: What we just saw, I think, is a radically different picture of marriage than what we typically think of when we think marriage. Like when we dream about marriage, very few, in fact, likely none of us, dream like this. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus gives a description of the magnificent view of marriage that God willed for his people. And after Jesus gives this description, after he puts this view right in front of them, the disciples respond in Matthew 19:10 by saying, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry perhaps like the disciples, that's exactly what you were thinking as you just watched the last eight minutes of this testimony of Ian and Larissa. Like, if this is what marriage is truly about, and this is what marriage could look like, then maybe it's too hard, and maybe it doesn't accomplish all of the things that I had in mind. Uh, They quoted John Piper several times. He also says this, it's on the screen. He says, how much more will the magnificence of marriage in the mind of God seem unintelligible in a modern Western culture, that is our culture, where the main idol is self, and its main doctrine is autonomy or independence, and its central act of worship is being entertained, and its three main shrines are the television, the internet, and the cinema. And its most sacred genuflection, or what it bows its knee to, is the uninhibited act of sexual intercourse. You see, Jesus responds to his disciples when they say it would be better for a man not to marry. He says, not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Our own sin, our own selfishness, our own cultural bondage makes it almost impossible for us to grasp the glorious reality of marriage as God intended it. And just like we began this conference by stating, only by the Spirit of God working through His Word will we be able to actually see the glory of this relationship and embrace the glory of marriage? Outside of choosing to follow Jesus, the most important decision that you will make in your life is whether to marry and whom you marry. The most important decision outside of following Jesus. Uh, How many of you guys are 15 years old? 15 years old? 16 years old? 17 years old, 18 years old, okay? Uh, Katie and I were coming up on our ninth anniversary on October 2nd, and we got married when we were 20 years old. Now that is a little early, so don't freak out too much, but if you get married at the same age that we were, that means that some of you are within five years of marriage, becomes a little bit more relevant. Uh, within the next 10 years of your life, you are going to make all kinds of decisions, future spouse, where you go to college, what you're gonna study, maybe first career, uh, all kinds of different decisions. And in the midst of all of those, and 10 years from now, God willing, when life looks drastically different than it does today as you sit here in this room, the most important one of those decisions will be whether you marry and whom you choose to marry. In Ephesians 5 32, you don't have to turn there yet, uh, Paul calls marriage a mega mystery. And all the married people in the room said, Amen. <laughs> uh, marriage is a mega mystery, not mystery in the sense of like it's a riddle that can't be solved or it's completely unable to be understood but in the terms of the way that the Bible uses this word mystery, that it's something that's wondrous. It's an unlooked-for truth that the Spirit of God reveals in the Word. He says about marriage, this mystery is profound. Marriage is an exceedingly great and wonderful and rich truth that can only be understood with God's help, and so Jesus in Matthew 19, saying not everyone can receive this, and Paul in Ephesians chapter five, saying it's a mega mystery. They're saying the same thing, that a God-sized view of marriage is unimaginably great and glorious, and that we'll need God's help to grasp it. So let's ask for that help now. Father, we come, and as we turn again to your word, as we seek, truth and wisdom here. We ask that you would flood our hearts now with uh, love and embracing of these truths. Would you uh, even change the way that we think as a result of our time here together this afternoon and give us a glorious and God-sized view of marriage? In Christ's name and for Christ's sake, amen. So what we're going to do for the rest of our time is we're going to put three concepts on the table that help to give us this God-sized, glorious vision of marriage. So please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 18. This is, of course, in the beginning. And here God is creating man and woman And he's helping us understand this glorious relationship that he brings into the world. So Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18, God's word says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone, but I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Follow what's happening in this passage. God creates man and then as he looks at man, he declares it is not good for man to be alone and so God is the one who generates the idea that he is going to fashion a helper suitable specifically for the man. And then he takes every other creature in creation at the time and passes them in front of Adam. And as Adam's looking at him, he's like, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it, nope, there's nothing here. And every other creature of the earth was found unsuitable for man, and so God is the one who generates the idea that woman is going to be created. So God then creates woman in a very profound sense. He fathers Eve And then what does it say? God presented the woman to the man as a father walks his daughter down the aisle. He brings Eve and presents her to Adam. And Adam says this, this is the one. Out of all the creatures of the earth, this one is one like me that God created for me so that we can have this unique relationship together. And then God is the one who joins the two of them together. And then God is the one in verse 24 who proclaims, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In this entire scene here in Genesis chapter 2, God is the primary and decisive actor. He is the one who is causing all of this to happen. He is the one who is designing the marriage relationship, creating the marriage relationship, and pronouncing the marriage. God is the creator and Lord of marriage, and as such, his word is the supreme word and final word on marriage. So if we're to have a right view, a right understanding of marriage, it could only come from, from God, the creator of this relationship. And God has much to say about marriage. And everything that God has to say about marriage is found right here in the book that's on your lap. That God has spoken, He has revealed what marriage is to be, so we don't need to speculate about what marriage ought to be. God has declared it to us if we don't come here, if we don't open up the Bible and come to understand this glorious view of marriage that God has given us, we will only have a weak and puny view that we can generate by ourselves or that culture feeds to us. God's word fills marriage with eternal and with infinite significance. So uh, point number one, God's word is the foundation of your marriage. God's word is the foundation of my marriage, of your future marriage, of every marriage. It will be from God's word that we come to understand this relationship. Concept number two, concept number two, the gospel is the fountain of marriage. The gospel is the fountain of marriage. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 22 and read through verse 33. Ephesians 5 22 begins, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25 it says, Husbands, love your wives. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, a familiar verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here it is: this mystery is profound. It is great, it is a mega mystery. And I am saying that it, that is the mystery of marriage, refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ephesians 5, this is where Paul declares to us that marriage is the unfolding of the gospel. It's the unfolding of the good news of Jesus Christ that ever since marriage was created, it was created with this ultimate intent that is to picture or to show or to have a living picture of the relationship that Jesus Christ has with the church that all of marriage, a God-honoring, glorious marriage, flows from the stream of the gospel, gets its life and direction from the gospel, and ultimately pictures forth the gospel. Think of how crazy this is. Before Genesis 3 happens, before the serpent tempts Adam and Eve and sin enters into the world and the need for redemption is put on the table, marriage had already been created and it had been created in such a way that was foreshadowing the relationship that Jesus would have with his bride, the church, as if God knew all things that would happen as if he's the one who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times saying my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. Marriage has always had the intent of being a living picture of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. So when you see verses that call a husband to give themselves up or to die for themselves in the same way that Jesus gave himself up for his bride? Well, it only makes sense because that's the script. And every husband and every wife is just being handed the script and saying, this is what it should look like. It should look like Jesus and the church and the love that Jesus Christ has for his bride." When the Bible here in Ephesians chapter five calls wives to submit to their own husbands, well, it just makes perfect sense because that's what the church does to Christ. I sat down this past summer with several couples that were moving towards marriage, doing some premarital counseling with them, and the concepts that God's word teaches about marriage are absolutely insane and backwards from the way that this world describes what marriage ought to be, what marriage ought to look like, how the husband should interact in the marriage, how the wife should interact in the marriage, and what marriage is supposed to be about. Uh, There were several moments as I was talking and working through these truths with them that they would give funny looks to one another, and they even in their out loud voice sometimes said, that's insane. Like this view, this picture, this reality that God's word is presenting to us in marriage, is so vastly different than the way that the world thinks about marriage. Several times, uh, just one of the couples that I was sitting with, uh, the, the soon-to-be wife would look at the husband and go, whoa, that's intense. <laughs> uh, and it is, right? Like marriage is the most intense human relationship. And seeing that it points to the most glorious truth in the universe that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, it makes sense that it's intense. Of course it is. Of course marriage is intense. Of course marriage is glorious. Of course marriage is powerful. Of course it's wonderful. Of course it's painful. Of course it's costly. Of course it's immensely beautiful. Because all of these describers, all of these adjectives can also be said of the good news of Jesus Christ. It is glorious and full of wonder. It is wonderful and it is painful. It is costly and it is beautiful. And so, the good news of Jesus Christ, this good news that stands at the very heart of the Bible, this reality that Jesus lived and died and rose again for sinners and that God will save anyone who turns from their sins and trusts in him. Actually understanding this reality and continually applying the reality of the gospel is the Christian life in every relationship and particularly in marriage. The gospel is an endless fountain of God's grace in every relationship, and it's a continuous fountain of God's grace in the midst of marriage. As a husband and a wife weave their lives together in marriage, they must daily tap into the waters of the gospel. You see, in the greatest moments of joy that a married couple might experience, they can remember that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father that the joy they're experiencing is a blood-bought gift because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so the moments of joy in marriage ought to remind us that we're experiencing a foretaste of the infinite and the eternal joy that we will experience when we see Jesus face to face. In the greatest moments of grief that are experienced in a marriage, couples can remember that the Lord is near that the Lord is the great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in all things in life because he came in the person of Christ and he lived amongst us. He knows our sorrows and he promises his very near presence in the midst of them. In the moments where a spouse would wanna place his or her needs above the needs of the other, they can remember that Jesus counted himself not equal with God, not more significant, but he didn't even count equality with God, something to be grasped or used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant. In any and in every situation, now, here, today, in your life, before marriage, and if God wills for you to be married in the future, every single instance in your life The gospel has immediate impact. It is the power of God. It is the highest concentration of the glory of God. The gospel alone frees us from sin and enslaves us to righteousness in Christ. And the gospel and only the gospel engenders or creates love in us for God and for others. The gospel and the gospel alone is the only reality, is the only truth, is the only power that can make us people who love, that can make us people who are humble, that can make us people who are full of joy and experience and cultivate joy in our relationships, all of them, and marriage. Think of Ian and Larissa, the story that we just saw. I mean, their story oozes the gospel, like from first to last, it is the gospel, laying down your life to serve the other. You see, marriage is not about getting all of the things that I have always wanted. Marriage is actually about self-sacrifice. Marriage is about service. Marriage is about a willingness to do what is best for the other, even if it comes at a great cost and expense to myself. First concept, God's word is the foundation of marriage. Second concept, the gospel is the fountain of marriage. And third concept, for a God-sized, glorious view of marriage, is that the glory of God must be the focus of marriage. The glory of God is the focus of marriage. Marriage is a good good, good gift from God and it is absolutely for our joy, but it is first for God's glory. Marriage is a good gift and yes, it is for our joy, but it is first and primarily about God's glory and marriage is awesome because God designed it to be about displaying his glory Marriage exists to display God's glory, and it's true of every single marriage, even those people who don't know who God is. Ever since the beginning of creation, this relationship has been about declaring the glory of God. And so when we talk about declaring the glory of God, what we mean, what is it to glorify God? It's simply this, it's to make his holiness or his beauty public his intrinsic worth, his intrinsic value, all the things that are true about God in his holiness, beauty, and perfection. When we glorify God, we give public testimony or we give public demonstration of God's perfect and beautiful holiness. This is what it means to glorify God and this is what marriage is supposed to be focused on. Glorifying God, making public his holiness, his greatness, and his beauty. I did some more research this week on couples when they were asked why they chose to get married, and here were some of the responses that these couples gave. Uh, One said, I just didn't want to do life alone. Another couple said, well, we wanted to have kids, and our parents would kill us if we had kids before we got married. Another couple said, well, we wanted to make our commitment to one another public. Another couple said, health insurance. They felt very loved after they said that in front of one another. Uh, Another couple said, it's more paperwork to buy a house when you're not married. And so we figured we'd get married first and do less paperwork. One guy said, so that 50 years from now, I can say, I told you so to all the haters out there. One said, future stability. And here's a good one. One wife said, so he can't marry anyone else. There are lots of reasons that people get married. Some reasons are better than others. But biblically, why should we consider pursuing marriage? Francis Chan, in another book he wrote called You and Me Forever, he says this, it's on the screen. Too often, Christians get so caught up in the concepts of marriage or in their specific marriages that God fades to the background. Something that God created to bring glory to himself becomes an obsession, a replacement for God, an idol. We want you to see marriage as a means of glorifying God, as an important part of the mission he has given you on earth, as a way to love God more fully, as a way of enjoying him in this life. Friends, marriage to the glory of God is about two people coming together to grow in godliness and to glorify the Lord. A biblical proposal then, if somebody was seeking to get engaged, would be for them to quote to their future spouse, Psalm 34, three, where it says, oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Like that declares with clarity what the purpose of marriage is. Come, let's be together and let's magnify God in a way that we believe in our lives, in God's sovereignty, the way that he created us. We couldn't do as well unless we're together and then let our lives be about exalting or lifting up or raising high the name of Jesus together. I love being married to my wife As I said, we've been married for almost nine years now, and the Lord has used our marriage as a powerful influence on the relationship that I have with the Lord and on the relationship that she has with the Lord. My wife encourages me to pray and to pray often. I love seeing her wake up early in the morning and sit in a chair in the corner of the house as far away from the kids as physically possible and just quietly listens to the Lord in the morning. There are often times where I'll come and share with her, and and my wife will encourage me to do what is right. When I'm weary, she spurs me on and does all that she can to lift me up and to help me. She lays down her life every day to love and to serve our family, and to create an environment or a space that we as a family can pursue the Lord in together. She daily lives as an example before our two children of what it means to fear God and to follow Jesus. She models faith, she models sacrifice, and she models repentance. Together by God's grace, we have chosen to order our lives around loving God and loving others and oh, we do not do this perfectly. But man, when we miss it, we repent and we call one another back to this needs to be about the glory of God. We want our lives, our marriage to be on mission with the glory of God being the one thing that radiates from our lives, from our relationship, from our family, from our everything. And sometimes This means that when we have a decision between what's fun and what's loving, we have to value and prioritize what's loving over what's fun because the highest goal of our marriage is about the glory of God. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas, professor of ethics on marriage, says this, Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. The moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person person we never know whom we marry we just think we do or even if we first marry the right person just give it a little while and he or she will change for marriage being the enormous thing that it is means that we are not the same person after we've entered it the primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married Dear friends, this is why we consider marriage and why we pursue marriage. Not for all the things that we can get. We pursue marriage because of the glory that we can give to God and all the love and the sacrifice that we can pour out to our spouse. God's word and God's word alone is the foundation for our marriages. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the fountain from which our marriages flow and the glory of God is the focus of our marriages. And if we don't get married, God's word is the foundation of our lives and all our relationships and the gospel is the fountain from which flows all of the love that we expend into all of our other relationships and the glory of God is the focus of every single minute, every single relationship that we do have in this life. So whether we marry or don't marry, these truths remain. God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God being our primary focus in life, God created marriage to be a wonderful, glorious, living picture of Christ and the church. And there are some who can better glorify God in marriage than in singleness. And yet there are others who can better glorify the Lord in singleness than they could in marriage. And if we keep the glory of God as our one focus, as the one thing before us, and allow that to be what commands the way, in which we think about and consider and pursue marriage. So often you see here on the screen, uh, this is how we would communicate the priority of relationships in our life. One God, two family, three friends, four work, five possessions. And this is a pretty good list. This is a really, really good start. But as we think back on this conference in the last four sessions that we've had, a more biblical understanding of priorities would actually be something that looks like this screen, where God is first, and everything else is not even close and comes secondarily to God. The word priority was not made plural until the end of like the 1800s because priority means that which is regarded as most important. We can't have priorities, plural. We can have a singular priority and God's word is calling us to have priority number one, our only priority to be our relationship with God. And then as we've seen worked out throughout the rest of these three sessions, when that relationship is right, when that's priority, and my life is filled with the love of God, then I begin to pour forth that love into every other relationship in my life. So every relationship ought to look like this. You remember this guy from the first session who has a right heart, a right being, a right everything that is being employed for the glory of God and for the love of God. And then as we as individuals are radically transformed by the spirit of God and our minds are renewed by the word of God as we step into every relationship, we do so consumed with and filled with a supreme love of God. And so then with my parents, I can love them and I can exercise humility towards them and I can experience joy and make life for them joyful because of the love that God has shown me. As I consider friends and people that I'm going to spend my life with I consider not being the companion of fools but rather choosing to surround myself with the wise that is others whose hearts whose minds have been transformed by the glory and gospel of Jesus Christ and their life is also on mission and about glorifying the Lord with everything that they do And then as I consider relationship with a future spouse, I do so through the lens of loving God most and being like Christ or like the church in such a way that displays the beauty and the glory and the gospel of God because of the love that Jesus has for his church. By God's grace, let's seek to be a people controlled by the love of God. Let's be a people that are consumed with right, godly, glorious, and biblically-minded relationships. Let's be a people that love God with our all, all the time, with all people, in all places. And let's think faithfully about relationships so that we might live faithfully in relationships. Father, we come to the end of these four sessions seeing the wisdom and beauty and truth of your word. We come to the end of these four sessions reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ where we sit in this room and as we've been challenged by truth from your word and as we've recognized throughout each session areas where we fall short of love, in relationships, where our relationship with you is not supreme, where our relationship with others is not the way that it should be. And so, Father, we come as people who are desperate and needy and desperate for your help in our lives. God, we want our relationships to be characterized by our supreme love for you. I pray for these students, for my brothers and sisters, for those in this room who maybe don't know you. God, I ask that by the power of your spirit, working through your word, that we would leave this place with minds renewed, with hearts changed about the way we consider relationship. And then would we go forth in the love of God, pouring forth the love of God in every relationship that you in your sovereign and good wisdom have placed into our lives so that in each of them we might experience such deep and satisfying joy and more than that, that you might be glorified in each of them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.